0: I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is the chef and restaurateur, Thomas Keller. His restaurants include The French Laundry, Per Se, Bouchon, Bouchon Bakery, and Ad Hoc. The French Laundry and Per Se hold three Michelin stars, and Thomas has won Best Chef awards from the Jane's Beard Foundation, among other accolades. He is the author of four cookbooks, including The French Laundry Cookbook. Welcome.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, thank you very much for having me. It
0: took you quite a few years before you bought the French Laundry and your career really took off. You held various cooking positions in Florida, Rhode Island, Catskill in upstate New York. You apprenticed in France. You then went from your first restaurant called Raquel in New York City to another restaurant in Los Angeles. And finally, you landed in Yountville in the Napa Valley. How did you find the French Laundry?
1: I was in Los Angeles at the time. I was dating a woman who was uh, uh, a wine broker in Los Angeles, of course, many of her um, wineries were in Napa Valley. So I would travel with her to Napa Valley probably twice uh, a month, and at at that time, uh, there was a chef, colleague, friend um, from New York City, Jonathan Waxman, who was opening his first restaurant outside of New York in California. Called Table Twenty Nine, and as he and during construction, I stopped by to see him one day on one of my trips. He knew I wasn't working. He said, "Thomas, there's this restaurant in Yonville called the French Laundry, and I know it's for sale, and I think it'd be perfect for you." And so that was really the catalyst that uh, that started the process. And I went to Yonville. I walked on the property of the French Laundry, and just emotionally resonated with me. It was I felt like this was the place.
0: By the way, this girlfriend, the wine broker, is this the woman whom you started uh, an olive oil company with called Evo in 1992?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Diane Harder. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Diane and I started an olive oil company called Evo. It was a time when I wasn't working and I was trying to find other avenues uh, from, from a culinary point of view where I could have an impact.
0: There's a quote in the French Laundry cookbook which resonated with me. Uh, When you first discovered the French Laundry, you said, I gave the French Laundry a new life and it gave me a new life. And that implies a level of um, sadness uh, Mm -hmm. prior to the French Laundry. Was there sadness in your life or um, restlessness Mm -hmm. prior to that?
1: Well, there was certainly a a great sense of uncertainty in my life. In New York, when I was in New York at Raquel, you know, this... This city was my home. It was the center of the universe. I never thought I would ever leave New York City. Um, You know, I was emotionally and physically um, committed to Raquel. And, of course, when that failed, I was set adrift, didn't really know what to do. I spent a year in New York trying to find some connection to something, really didn't, and ended up in L.A. I went out there to be the chef of Checkers Hotel, Uh, a great hotel. We got great exposure. Uh, It was a great success, but ultimately, that was a failure for me, mm-hmm. um, and then I was set adrift again in, in LA and I didn't really know where, what I was going to do. was I destined to be really was I destined to be a chef? was I cut out to be a chef as much as I love cooking as much as I love the fact of uh, nurturing people th- through food? So the French Audi was was kind of my last my last effort. Mm-hmm. Um, if that didn't work, I'm not sure what I would have done.
0: Why do you think Rock didn't work
1: out? There's a number of different things, certainly. You know, at that time in, in, in New York, which was the, um, the mid-'80s, I mean, it was just booming. Uh, the Americans were learning about, about French cuisine, about uh, fine dining, and certainly Raquel was a version of that at that moment. Um, Raquel was, was downtown uh, in a new area, Hudson Square. Um, uh, my partner, Serge Raoul, who owns Raoul's, certainly had great experience in New York and certainly great experience downtown. I had just come back from France, uh, learning about French food, living there, uh, learning really in the detail of French food. And it was a great success for, for the first four years. I mean, the restaurant was six years old by the time we closed it. And, and then, of course, the, the area didn't develop as that was predicted to develop. Uh, We had certainly the stock market uh, downturn. But I I think one of the big reasons is is I really didn't understand how to run a restaurant. And from that moment on, I knew that if I was going to have another restaurant, if I was gonna be lucky enough Mm -hmm. to have another restaurant in my life, I needed to have individuals involved in that restaurant that knew more than I did about finance, knew more than I did about running a dining room. I was a chef, you know, and a lot of chefs think they can do everything. Um, I realized at that moment at Raquel, at great expense, um, personal expense, uh, financial expense, um, that I didn't know everything I needed to know.
0: I've heard you say that one of the appeals to cooking is the immediate gratification that you get. But looking at your history, it seems like your life has been more of one of a patient gardener a gardener who has to tolerate the erratic nature of the weather and other components out of one's control What is your temperament
1: it's interesting what you say patience um, I I learned patience relatively later in life and a big part of that. Um, came to me when I was uh, trying to put together the financial structure for the French Laundry and buying the French Laundry. Uh, I would call my attorney every day and ask him if, if there was any news. Uh, and, and finally, one day he said, Thomas, listen, I'll call you when there's news. And I, and I had to keep myself busy, and I had to learn to be patient. And then of course, persistence. I mean, I, I sit here today um, as a true example of somebody who was persistent.
0: You talk about patience in the kitchen and in your in your cookbook, the French Laundry cookbook, you talk about being mindful about cutting an artichoke. What are some other examples of your your being mindful of the mundane in the kitchen?
1: Cooking is repetition, and I think that as cooks you have to be comfortable with with knowing that you're going to be doing the same thing your entire career. And and of course, that's gonna change and evolve, but at the, at the basis of what you're doing, you're cooking, whether it's sauteing or braising or roasting or chopping or slicing or dicing, um, plating food, I mean, all the poaching, uh, even the new sous vide technology that we're using in the kitchen. All those, once you've mastered them, once you've learned them, you're gonna be doing them. They're part of the, the daily routine. They're part of your daily structure. Repetition, in many ways, liberates you uh, to be working on other things. I mean, I've cleaned salmon so many times before that I don't really have to, to focus on cleaning the salmon, it's almost like muscle memory, and I, and I can be thinking about more other things, like what am I going to do with the salmon when I get it cleaned?
0: Have you been influenced by any religion that has helped you be more mindful? Because you're talking as somebody who might do yoga or meditation, or even you know, Judaism is about the present. So there's, there's a lot of religious, uh, spiritual components to what you're talking about.
1: People have said that to me before. I, I don't. I mean, I, other than as a, as a young um, as a young boy, I was um, I went to Catholic school, and one of the things I did every day was be an altar boy at mass, and that was something. Seven a.m. mass, I was there, you know, five days a week or six days a week because it was also Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I didn't really have much. Later in life, I didn't have a strong connection to religion, and, and certainly um, meditation or any kind of spiritual enlightenment is not part of my. Um, never been part of my life Mm. really so I'm not sure where it comes from
0: (laughs) I'm Jessica Harris, you're listening to From Scratch my guest is the chef and restaurateur Thomas Keller, he's the first American chef to be awarded three Michelin stars for both of his fine dining restaurants, the French Laundry in Napa Valley, California and Per Se in New York City You spent your early life in California before moving to Florida. Your parents were divorced. Your father was a marine drill instructor, and he he left your mother when you were five or six years old uh, with you and your four brothers. Correct. What influence did your father's absence in your life have on you?
1: My mother and father didn't have uh, a very good separation, so they, they, they didn't they didn't part on friendly terms. So you know, growing up, and I was four years old when they separated. So my whole life was with my mother and my brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father wasn't really part of it. Uh, he was somebody who lived in Pennsylvania. I, I don't want to say I didn't have any need for him, but I didn't have an apparent need for him. I certainly had that uh, that that father those father figures in my older brothers. Um, they were my role models. Um, they were my teachers. You know, from a from a uh, from a masculine point of view. And, and my mother was there. My mother uh, was uh, a, an amazing person, very dedicated, um, committed to her children and their well-being. And she ran restaurants. Uh, so she was, she was gone in many evenings, which left, uh, left the older brothers, my older brothers, to kind of cook for us and babysit us, which was fine. But I didn't grow up on, you know, sitting on my mother's knees during the polenta or my grandmother's, you know, in my grandmother's kitchen, you know, Mm -hmm. baking biscuits. Um, But as I started to grow older, I spent more and more time at the restaurant. And I I really enjoyed uh, those moments in, in my mother's restaurant. Uh, in those kitchens
0: when you say your mother's restaurant mm-hmm. she was a restaurant manager of an existing restaurant e- exactly in Florida. She,
1: she didn't own the restaurant she yeah. ran the restaurants yes
0: what are some of those 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 early memories that you have with her in the res, in the restaurant
1: well you know the, the restaurants are very nurturing places um, um and at the same time, kitchens can be very violent places. Mm-hmm. So you, you have this the, the, this real dichotomy between these two these two environments. Um, you have these individuals in there who are continuously cooking for for people and nurturing them, but at the same time, you have sharp knives, you have wet floors, you have steam, you have heat, you have all these different things going on. So you really have to be aware. Uh, in a kitchen, And I think awareness was key for me. And I think that was one of the great things I learned early on from my mother and being in those kitchens was a sense of awareness, awareness of everything that's around me and being careful.
0: Hmm. When you were with your mother in those early, in those earlier years, did you have thoughts of, you know, I, this is where I want to make my life. When did that come to mature?
1: Well, it's, no, I, I never wanted to really, I never thought about being a chef in those early days. When I did venture out on my own and have and have a job in in, in the real world, which was in, in construction, my other brothers, my older brothers, were in construction, so I kind of migrated towards that. Uh, but once once I found my way back into the kitchen, and, and although I didn't realize it at that time, looking back at that moment, washing dishes at the Palm Beach Club really prepared me to be a cook because the the actions that you are doing as a dishwasher the same things that you're going to be doing as a cook. In other words, it's about organization. Um, so as the, as all the dirty dishes and silverware and glasses come in, you have to be extremely organized. You right. have to have them stacked correctly. You have to have them piled. You have to have the water ready for, these, for the silverware. Uh, you have to be efficient. So you have to be able to stack the plates up correctly or get the silverware done correctly so that you're efficient in your movement, uh, so you're not wasting any time. Uh, you get instant feedback. You know, if you don't if you don't scrape the dishes correctly or spray them down correctly before they go in the dish machine, they come out dirty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you learn to be part of a team. Everybody in the restaurant relies on you. Uh, so those were those are four critical elements of, of of being a really good dishwasher that you translate to being a really good cook.
0: Yeah. It was washing dishes that helped you realize, you know what, I can make a life in, in the kitchen. But you had a level of organization and almost compulsiveness for cleanliness and precision even outside the kitchen in your home growing up. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you were like in your own home?
1: Well, my mother was uh, was meticulous. I mean, the, the, the house had to be clean all the time. And you take your shoes off before... Before you went inside, you know, I mean, you, at, at one point, I remember in my life, the, the furniture was covered in in plastic wrap, you know, to protect the, the fabric. We all had chores every week. My brothers and I always had chores. And Joseph and I, being the youngest, um, would always have to do the chores of the oldest. I, I I was the one that always had to clean the bathroom, and, and that was probably the most difficult and and, and certainly the most um you really became aware of how clean it was.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the chef and restaurateur Thomas Keller. We'll hear more from Thomas coming up. I'm Jessica Harris, this is From Scratch. My guest is the chef and restaurateur, Thomas Keller. His restaurants include the French Laundry, Per Se, Bouchon, Bouchon Bakery and Ad Hoc. The French Laundry and Per Se hold three Michelin stars, and Thomas has won Best Chef awards from the Jane's Beard Foundation, among other accolades. You weren't surrounded by, you know, this rich culinary life growing up in any way. How did that transition occur from, you know, washing dishes in a, you know, random restaurant with your mom to actually acquiring this awareness of this whole other thing? Culinary world.
1: So, if you think back at the Palm Beach Junk Club, I was washing dishes, and one day my mother came to me and said, "You know, Richard, who was the chef at the time, you know, Richard's going to leave in a couple weeks. So, you know, if you watch what he does, um, mm-hmm. we're going to make you the chef." How old were you? Um, I was probably 19. Okay, uh, and I thought, wow, that's is interesting, um, but I did have a leg up. My brother Joseph was already, you know, already in the profession. Uh, he he decided at a relatively young age, twelve or thirteen, that he really wanted to be a chef. Uh, and and Richard did show me. He showed me how to make an omelet. He showed me how to, you know, grill a flank steak, make hamburgers, things like that. And that's really what basically it was. The the most difficult thing I had to do every day was make a hollandaise sauce. And my brother Joseph was very influential in helping me do that.
0: But no, no formal training ever.
1: No formal training. But there was really not an option. There wasn't a lot of options back in 1974 for formal training. Cooking wasn't viewed as it is today. There was really not a whole lot of interest in becoming a chef.
0: You had the reputation of managing your kitchen as if you were a military uh, marine drill instructor like your father. And it's almost trite to ask, Mm -hmm. you know, what parallels are there between you and your father? But how has that occurred to you?
1: Well, you're right. I mean, absolutely. There is there is a definite hierarchy in the kitchen. Um, that hierarchy was defined by Augustus Escoffier in, in the turn of the 1900s. Um,
0: is this the brigade system?
1: The brigade system. Yeah. So you have a brigade, brigade or brigade. I mean, brigade in French, brigade in America. And I mean, there there is there is you know. The hierarchy. There's the chef, who's the leader. Then there's the sous chefs, demi sous chefs, chef de parties, commis. Uh, so you have this this real hierarchy of how the kitchen operates. And when you think about a kitchen, especially during service, or most of the time, it's about command response. And when you think about it, that that initial command really comes from the guest. Mm-hmm. You sit down at the table, you look at the menu, and you choose what you want to eat, and you so you tell the waiter. And that's your command. Then all of a sudden, as the chef, then you tell all the chef de what needs to be done. And and they respond. Uh, so from a militaristic point of view, it's the same in the military. It's all about command response.
0: Was it striking to you that, oh, my career is paralleling my father's to a large degree? I, it, it was
1: a little bit. I didn't really think about it until, until much later in life, um, well, much later in life, my early 20s, when I really started to think about it and I started to make, uh, I started to reach out to my father to reconnect with my father at that time in my life.
0: And when you did reach out to him, you really reconnected in a big way. Your father moved from Pennsylvania to California to be with you at the French Laundry yes. in Napa Valley. And, and he died after having a car accident uh, about a year after? Uh,
1: uh, yeah, about a year and a half after he arrived in, in, uh, in Yonville. He had a horrific car accident that left him a quadriplegic. And that was one of the most challenging moments of my life is to, is to prepare him to come home, his home in, 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 uh, in Yonville.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the chef and restaurateur Thomas Keller. He was awarded France's highest culinary decoration, the Légion d'Honneur, for popularizing French cuisine in America in 2011. So you found your home in, in the French Laundry, and it took you about two years to raise one and a half million dollars to get the restaurant off the ground. Who did you raise the capital from?
1: Yeah. It wasn't even, it was a million two, a million point two. Uh, but I mean, back then I was, you know, I mean, when, when you don't have any money, you know, a, a, a substantial amount of money million is, was enormous amount of money to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I went through <clears throat> three different avenues to raise the money. One was a commercial bank loan, real estate loan. Although I realized that once I started to apply for the bank loans, the the, the failure here in New York City um, came to be a problem. So, I, you know, I had to have my old partner, Serge Raoul who really went out on a limb for me financially, um, come back and satisfy some of the debt that was still um, was still outstanding at mm. Um So, you know, when you think about the people that are involved in your life and how they they come to your aid in, in some of the most uh, unpredictable ways, I mean, certainly we had a failed restaurant. We had parted ways. I was gone for three and a half years, and all of a sudden I need him to come back and satisfy a, a, a financial debt for us. And so, you know, that was one of the first individuals that, you know, really stepped up to the plate to, to, to help. <clears throat> the second part was uh wasn't a, a small business administrative loan. And we were very fortunate that, I was very fortunate at that time. Um, President Clinton had just come into office. He was trying to re-energize the economy. So he uh, funded the SBA in, in, in a significant way. And you know, a white middle-class educated mail is not was not the profile for the SBA prior to that mm-hmm. and then finally the last component was um, uh, was going out to, to private individuals for um, going out to individuals for, for private placement uh, and I, I reached out to probably over 400 people and that was probably the most um, difficult part of my life trying to sell mm. this project and and out of 400 we had 50 people who finally signed a check and and that was the final straw that uh, helped me buy the French Laundry.
0: And the French Laundry uh, in the 1880s when it was first built was actually a bar.
1: Before Prohibition, was, it was it was opened as a saloon gambling brothel. Yonville in, in that time, we had we have a veteran's home there which is the oldest veteran's home in America or in, in California, I'm sorry. Um, and then what happened really is that the, the state really got tired of all the problems they were having in Yonville. So they passed a the law. There wasn't a lot alcohol served with any, with, within two miles of the veteran's home. Mm. So that shut down Yonville. Mm-hmm. And that's when a young couple, a young French couple, bought the property. Yonville, Napa Valley at that time still was a place um, that many of the uh, social elite from San Francisco would, would uh, summer in. So their their business model was to, you know, service all of these uh the socialites in their homes with uh, with the laundry service, and hence that was where the French laundry began.
0: After ten years of French laundry, you opened Per Se in 2004 in New York City. So you returned to to the city that rejected you uh, in in the <laughs> in the earliest days. How did that relationship with the Time Warner Center originate?
1: Time Warner Center was being um, was being developed by the related group. At that time, they were really looking towards France to come and occupy and build the restaurants there. At the same time, one or two of the French chefs that just arrived in America received some uh, less than flattering reviews, so they kind of repositioned themselves and said, okay, let's, let's not go to France, let's look into America, and, uh, and they reached out to, to me uh, to see if I'd be interested in being one of their one of their tenants, and I'd looked at New York once in a while, you know, mm-hmm. through through the history of the French Laundry, you know, people would always say, well, "When are you coming home?" You know, home being New York City. If I was going to do another restaurant, another fine dining restaurant, there's really no other city in America to do it, and the Time Warner Center really offered us an opportunity to do it in a significant way.
0: You had a a charmed uh, life with French Laundry, but Per Se had an inauspicious start. There was a fire which Mm -hmm. set you back. Can you talk to me about that episode?
1: (laughs) We opened the restaurant uh, on February uh, 19th in 2004, a little less than 10 years after we opened the French Laundry, and we had closed the French Laundry and brought 30 of those individuals to Per Se to help inoculate and train the new team. So we were off to a great start. Uh, And then on that, uh, the 26th of February, uh, it was right at uh, staff meal, and I was in the butcher room with two of my sous chefs and we were chatting, and we started to smell smoke, then we started to see smoke, and uh, that's when I evacuated the, the kitchen, the restaurant, we called the fire department, and that was basically uh, what I thought was the beginning of end. And I stood there when that young fireman, you know, standing on uh, on top of the tables and just taking that big axe and going through the wall, and the flames shooting out, and water pouring out everywhere. And I thought, you know, I called my attorney and I said, I got to get out of here. But the next day we came back and you know we had a whole different attitude. We're gonna we're going to now have a second chance to open this restaurant. And then I started getting cards from our Asian guests, and uh, they were all flowers were coming, and, and congratulations were coming. Because in Asia, if you have a fire in your kitchen, it means you're going to be successful. <laughs> yeah. So it's just a, you know it was a matter of point of view.
0: I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the chef and restaurateur Thomas Keller. I want to talk about uh, just the experience of of dining in the French Laundry, or per se. Uh, the menus change every day in both restaurants. And you've said that you don't repeat any ingredients in the nine courses. Is that true?
1: We repeat luxury, luxury ingredients. So there may be truffles twice, or there may be foie gras twice. But we would never have mushrooms twice, or carrots twice, or turnips twice, um, or things like that.
0: Do you think the clientele would really mind?
1: Well, you know, at some point, you know, as much as we appreciate and work for our guests, it's really about us. You know, it's about our values and our, our standards. and. And challenging ourselves, and it was really a challenge in the beginning. Okay, we're not going to repeat any any, any garnishes, any vegetables. Why would we? We're the French Laundry.
0: <laughs> and we're going to have a new menu every day. Every day, day right. right. Can you walk me through some of the items on your menus uh, that that y- you are particularly fond of?
1: Um, well, I, I, some of the signature dishes, or some of the iconic dishes anyway, certainly the coronet of salmon. Um, and what that is, it, it, it really looks like a miniature ice cream cone. And the inspiration mm-hmm. from that ice cream cone, from that for that dish, came from my experience eating ice cream cones that's at
0: Baskin and Robbins here
1: in, in Chinatown. Exactly, um, and 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 that's where we, when you think about awareness, how important awareness is, because you can look at something every day or every week or experience something over and over again and never really realize the full potential of what of what that is. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until that that day um, in 1991. When I was at Baskin Robbins and the ice cream cone was put in front of me, did I see hmm. the coronet?
0: How about the oysters and pearls, which is another iconic offering of yours? Exactly,
1: it's an, it's one of those iconic dishes that is prepared every day. It was a purple box, and I was walking down the aisle of a grocery store, and I saw a purple box. And on the purple box, it said, you know, pearl tapioca. And I'm thinking, where do, where do, where do pearls come from? Pearls come from oysters, and therefore, you know, I took I bought a box of pearl tapioca, took it back to the French Laundry, and knew exactly what I was going to do with it, and there we have oysters and pearls
0: and there is a level of of playfulness uh, on the menu per se Mm -hmm. which uh, seems surprising perhaps to people who go because oh this is a fine dining establishment and they might expect it to be stuffier than it certainly is
1: if you've experienced macaroni and cheese before i think which we all have we can reinterpret that in 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 a way that's going to be significant and you're going to go wow that's just like the best macaroni and cheese i've ever had Mm -hmm. Um, coffee and donuts you know is is another one of those iconic dishes And, and when you think about yes you know, fine dining restaurants historically have always been intimidating. And it's something that I don't want to represent in our restaurants. And so when you get that that cornet, I mean, you have to smile. <laughs> it's, it's just so darn cute.
0: The law of diminishing marginal returns is important to you. Uh, and the idea is when you are giving people their food, you give them just enough to keep it interesting before they move on to the next.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You know, and you think about the law of diminishing returns and something came evident to me when I was uh, a, a young person living in Florida. And we would go to the beach on Saturday and have beer. That first, cold beer on a hot summer day was really amazing, really refreshing, really good. And, of course, by the time the second one came around, it was less and the third one was even less so. Um, and you know, I translated that into the way I thought about food.
0: There's a comedian, Louis C.K. He says, yeah, you know, some people might eat until they're full and then move and then stop, but I eat until I'm ashamed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: what are your own eating habits?
1: Um, well, I, you know, I try to eat, I try to eat healthy. Of course, uh, I don't try to eat a lot of food. I try, you know, in the morning it's 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 very ritualistic. Typically, I'll I'll have uh, you know some type of granola with uh, chia seeds and some uh, some flax, some ground flaxseed, which I grind myself. Um, then I'll have a vitamin regimen with some with some juice or some probiotics, and then I'll have coffee. Uh, and then you know throughout the day, I typically eat with the team at the restaurant. Meeting at eight a.m. in the morning, at noon, and then again at four forty-five because that's when we serve our our PM meal. So if I stay on that schedule. I feel really, really good.
0: I want to talk about your suppliers. You have more than three hundred and fifty suppliers for the be. restaurant. For
1: the restaurant, yeah, you know, suppliers come and go depending on the season, depending on what they're growing, depending on on where they are.
0: Can you provide some examples of uh, your suppliers? Some of the stories uh, of your suppliers? There are
1: so many. In- Ingrid yeah. Benjes, who's in Stonington, Maine, um, who is accidental. I mean, she was she was an author. She moved to, to Maine, and uh, she was trying to make a living, and uh, she found some mushrooms and 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 found and found a home for them. Uh, at Balduschi's here in New York, and they said, "Well, what else do you have?" And she said, "Well, I'm from Maine. Maybe I can get you lobsters." And, and so, that was almost forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane Saint Clair in, in Orwell, Vermont. She gets up every day, seven days a week, at four a.m. to milk the cows by six, so that she can so that she can start making the butter. You know that she cultured the uh, the, the day before. You know, make twenty pounds of butter a day
0: incidentally I have to mention I, I was reading New York magazine recently and uh, there's this uh, this piece on per se uh, talking about you know that trysts happen you know you're uh-huh. working intensely with intensely with people uh, and you become intimate with them that is true for you too uh, it is. you hired Laura Cunningham who was your restaurant manager, really Correct. your first hire, mm-hmm. at the French Laundry and she's now your partner.
1: Exactly, exactly. Can you,
0: can you describe that evolution? Well, you
1: know, it's inter- in, in, we work so hard and and, and and so long, so many hours, and, we, and you're right, you really become intimate with the individuals that you're working with. Uh, in in so many in so many ways, uh, and it's and it's always kind of difficult when you become when you when you begin a personal relationship with a coworker, mm-hmm. but no more so than with Laura and I because at the French Laundry when we were, you know when we were both working at the French Laundry every day together we lived next door it really became a a, 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 a true family kind of environment I mean mm-hmm. if if mother wouldn't let you do something that's class father.
0: You have this reputation for being really very control-oriented, and in fact, you said a kitchen is about control at any level. But do you think you're any different from the top chefs? There's this element of
1: control, yeah, for control freaks. I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. I mean, chefs, you know, historically, I mean, by nature, are control freaks. They want to control. They need to control what's going on in their kitchen, so that they're controlling what's going on in the dining room. You know, we talk about emotional chefs you know most chefs that have outbursts and you know get upset and where that comes from i mean the genesis of that is something happening that prevents me from giving you the guest the experience that i want cuz if something if something comes in the way of that something clogs that then then there's there there's a problem
0: have you in the past like worried, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be very well liked if I'm going to be so control oriented? Like, did you ever have to kind of grapple with that for yourself?
1: Yeah, you do. I mean, at, at, when I was younger, I mean, those emotions, those emotional outbursts, you know, sometimes became personal and you realized that that's that's, that's just not, that's not the way to operate. That's not respectful. And you ended up going back to the person that you had that emotional outburst and you had to apologize to that person. What's
0: an example? We talk at 30,000 feet of, you know, your attention to detail and your control orientation. What's an example? of that in the kitchen day to day?
1: Everything's about precision.
0: But what's an example?
1: Okay, an example is let's take something as simple as, as knife skills. You know, cutting brunoise of vegetables. Brunoise of vegetables is something that's one-eighth of an inch square. Mm-hmm. You know, and being able to make sure that the mandolin that you have that slices, that slices the, the elongated uh, uh, piece of vegetable um, is really, really sharp and has the right calibration in terms of, of thickness. And then that's your knife skills because then your knife skills come because then you're slicing that, that, that long, thin um, julienne of vegetable into a brunoise. Uh, let's, let's talk about cannelling. Canelling, canelling is, is is having two spoons, and canelling is something that we do in so many different ways. It's making, it's making something in the shape of an egg. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a is is something that's the shape of an egg. If you're canelling sorbet or ice cream, you know it really requires the the sorbet or the ice cream to be a, a specific temperature, and it requires you to have a spoon that's clean and hot, so that when you move your spoon through the ice cream or sorbet, the the sorbet just folds over itself and, and forms this perfect egg shape canal of ice cream or if you're using two spoons when we're cannelling the caviar for the oyster and pearl for example making sure that you have enough caviar on the spoon and your spoons are clean and accurate so that and your movement back and forth to create this shape that you're then going to put on the dish which is oysters and pearls which is the first dish that our guests really receive and something that's so impactful for them
0: do you have the same level of precision in your personal life
1: Habits are really important. So I think it's important that you recognize a certain standard. And many of us, let's take a t-shirt for example. You may have a little hole in your, in your t-shirt and nobody really sees it. So is it to your standard to just to, to know that you're wearing a t-shirt that has a hole in it? Or is your standard so that you know there's a hole in it It's not acceptable even to you even though no one else sees it? And you get a new t-shirt.
0: And what is your standard? New t-shirt. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My guest has been the chef Thomas Keller. Coming up, we'll meet Elizabeth Cutler and Julie Rice, co-founders of SoulCycle, a company that offers indoor cycling classes. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch.